The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. Richard Ryerson here. Happy you're tuning in. Great conversation today with Celeste Headley. She's a public broadcast radio show host and the author of Herd Mentality and her new book, We Need to Talk, which we talk exclusively about on this show. It's all about having conversations. I saw her on a TED Talk, and it was in 2015, and it featured her presentation, 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation, and just fabulous TED uh, Talk, if you're into that thing, and it's been viewed more than 12.5 million times. CNBC voted Celeste as having one of the most-watched TED Talks in 2016, and Glassdoor named Celeste as having the number one must-watch TED Talk for every recruiter and hiring manager, and I agree. Now, Headley speaks to groups all across the globe about the art of conversation and focused listening. Her book that we talk about here on the show, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, is a practical guide to the lost art of conversation and was released last September, and I highly encourage you to get this book, particularly since communication is such a a drastic challenge in life, but particularly in leadership. Everything kind of revolves around communication or the lack of it. And so we deep dive into the art of conversation in her brand new book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. This show is brought to you by my online leadership course, Legacy Leader Blueprint, the online video course that includes 20 high-impact videos and six hours of live group coaching and facilitation with me, That will allow you and your team to become true leaders of influence. The course teaches you how to defeat mediocrity and stagnation, teaches you how to create a high-impact culture of initiative, and it also teaches you how to build empowered teams with high degrees of implicit trust. You can go to doseofleadership.com slash legacyleaderblueprint, and you can read about all the testimonials. You can watch a video that shows you the inside of the course. It shows you the dashboard and what's contained in all of the 20 videos. Again, it doesn't break the bank. It's $349 per seat right now. Those prices will go up in 2018. And it's also designed so that you can uh, watch the videos in your own spare time and not disrupt your busy schedule. And in between each of the four modules, you will get a one and a half hour coaching facilitation session with me. It's a perfect team building exercise and it's a perfect way to plant the seeds of leadership into your culture, into your organization. I designed it specifically for organizations that were having a difficult time finding the time or the resources to do quality leadership training. This is the perfect solution, Legacy Leader Blueprint. Check it out at doseofleadership.com. All right, great conversation here with Celeste Headley here on Dose of Leadership. Celeste, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thanks for having me. I was excited to get this email uh, to have you come on the show. I mean, communication is, I mean, you could... Almost every problem in life, particularly when we talk about leadership, it seems it always goes back to communication, doesn't it? 
It does. And yet, oddly enough, we we really don't talk about it very much, maybe right. because it's like grouped under soft skills and that everyone just kind of groans and heads for their office. Um, but, you know, they actually did a survey and they found that, you know, the vast majority of both academics and executives say that, you know, listening, for example, is one of the most important skills you need. But when then they surveyed uh, business journals and found that only 1.5% of articles ever dealt with listening. So even though we all know it's really important, we just don't really talk about it all that much. Yeah, but I think it's just so painful. It's almost like, for me, it's like writing, right? I mean, it's we, we think, well, first of all, listening is a little different because we think we're doing it, right? And, yeah. And it takes a tremendous amount of effort and concentration. And your brain is just like this drunk monkey that's just constantly moving right and so it's like how do you how do you tone it down right it's it's very difficult it is difficult and 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 you're right it does take training cuz human beings um i mean that was one of kind of one of the revelations i had when i was doing all the research for the book was that you know human beings just don't listen well naturally you really do have to be trained in how to do it and and work at it just the way that you keep going to the gym. You have to keep trying. Yeah. So, yeah. I know when I did this, I started the show five years ago and you can appreciate because you have your show too. I remember when I first started doing interviews, I, I would go back and I would listen. In fact, I can even listen to them now. It's so painful. But I would listen to the replay of the interview and I heard – uh, the interviewee say something and I'm like, I have no recollection of them saying that because I was thinking of the next question. I mean, I was like, and that's when I just totally ditched my notes. I did, I did prep and everything else, but then I just let the curiosity take over. And the great thing about audio is you can't see me behind here, but sometimes I got my hand on my head. I'm leaning into the microphone because I'm, it takes effort to listen. It really does. And something a lot of people, public radio fans don't know, for example, is that Almost never Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air, she's almost never in the room with her guests. Right. I didn't know that. God, I would. Yeah. yeah. She um, has them uh, in another room and they connect, obviously, uh, over like an ISDN, sure, a, a sure. really clear line. But the, the reason is, is that she's staring down at her notes all the time. And she found that le- losing that eye contact impacted the the interview. So, um you know, she has them uh, in another room so that they only hear her voice and they still feel that intimacy. Yeah, well, that's what's so great about, you know, audio conversations, right? Because it has that intimacy factor. But the reality is we live in the world where we got to face each other. And so how do we do that when we're staring? I find myself, I'm staring and I'm like, and my mind's like, oh my God, I hope they don't think I'm staring too much, you know, and because you want to be present and it's just, oh, it's just like this constant battle. Yeah. And, and, you know, most of us are not Terry Gross. In fact, all but one of us is not Terry Gross. <laughs> right, right. And so we're not responsible for keeping all that information in our heads at any one time. Right. So, so for most of us, it's just a matter of not letting your own thoughts distract you. Yeah. And I don't want to make that sound simpler than it is. Um, it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And it does require actual practice to, yeah. to do that. But you, it, you are absolutely right. It is essential. You have to do it or you're not really listening. Yeah. Well, and I think it helps too, if you go into uh, a conversation, almost like an interview, right? It's like if, if you study any type of journalism or, you know, go, go with the open-ended questions and, and don't ever make it about you. I think that founds me if I'm in a public setting and I can sit there and I just generally start letting my curiosity take over and start asking about them. People love to talk about themselves. And I think that helps tremendously. And and not getting distracted by, 
you know, devices or anybody else in the room that I think those, those three things have helped me listen better anyway. What are your thoughts? Yeah. And, you know, you've really hit on another thing that was a, a big revelation for me was I, I found that research that came out of Harvard in 2014, in which they used an fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine. And that what they discovered was that talking about yourself, what they call self-disclosure, activates the same pleasure center in the brain as sex in heroin wow. and chocolate. Yeah. So um, talking about yourself is inherently pleasurable. Um, and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, although it does make it harder for all of us to have mutually respectful and shared time during conversations. It also means that it's really easy to start a conversation with someone else, right? No matter yeah. who they are. Because yeah. you just have to ask them questions that allow them to talk about themselves. Right. And it's easy to continue a conversation, keep asking those questions because, and the other person is not only going to probably answer your questions. They're probably not only going to be interesting because they're enthusiastic about the subject, but they're going to walk away from that conversation thinking that you are yes. a great conversationalist. <laughs> yeah, and when you probably even said anything, right? And so if exactly. you could just if you could just hit it like, well, why? Tell me more. Or, you know, just just sometimes just saying that just leads to these amazing conversations. Just why? Tell me more. Absolutely. And yeah. and you know, I say all the time Look, if you make it your mission to have as many conversations as possible and your goal in those conversations is not to talk about what you know, which teaches you nothing, right? Right. Um, but to learn from the other person, um, you'll be brilliant, right? You'll be a genius. <laughs> right. It's so true. You'll have learned so much. Yeah. I love the idea in your book, the brand new book, We Need to Talk, that, that's coming out, How to Have Conversations That Matter. Uh, I just had a conversation with my daughter about this the other day. He's like, it's amazing. And, and I'm a pilot, and, I, and sometimes I'll walk down um, the aisle as people are getting on board. And sometimes, I swear to God, uh, 160 people on a plane, and 98% of them are looking down at their phone as they're sitting down. Yeah. And it's amazing to think that it, in so many ways, we're so, we, we think we're more connected, but I think we're more isolated than ever. What do you think? Yeah. And that's actually, again, backed up by research. Um, and we all, uh, you know, a lot of people thought, and including myself, a lot of people thought that social media was going to be the great connector, yeah. that it was going to encourage introverts to speak up more, that it was going to help people find social communities, um, even if they live in rural areas. And and to a very small extent, that tr that's true. Social media and like Facebook, we know Facebook is good at connecting. It, it helps you find people that from high school that you haven't talked to in decades, right? right. But that's as far as it goes. It doesn't actually result, not only does it not result usually in healthy, authentic relationships, but in fact, it's having the opposite effect. So since 19, the 1980s, the number of people who are reporting that they're lonely has doubled yeah. from 20 to 40 percent. Mm -hmm. And social isolation is on the rise. Mm -hmm. And um, social isolation is, by the way, is as bad for you by many measures as smoking. It's really bad for your health. Um, so th it's a real problem. You know, social media, um, there's this great research coming out of Pew, the Pre Pew Research Center, and they called their report the spiral of silence. Because as it turns out, social media is in fact shutting down real life conversation. Instead right. of sparking, encouraging people to talk in real life, it's actually when you get uh, negative responses on Twitter or Instagram or somewhere else, you're less likely to talk to real people in real life. Yeah. It's it's very upsetting. It is upsetting. And I, and I almost, 
you know, particularly as crazy as these um, last couple of years have been, or even the last decade, if you want to say that, in terms of the social media's rise, it seems like we're this division, the kind of insanity that we see, and the amount of things that we're getting bombarded with. It can almost be attributed. I mean, do you think this division is attributed to this social media phenomenon? I mean, I, I don't know if there's any empirical evidence or not, but it just kind of intuitively it seems like that to me that we're so divided because of the social media. I don't know. What do you think? So I, you're right. We, correlation is not causation. Like we can't yeah. draw a straight line sure. between the rise of the smartphone and the rise of social media and the the fall of conversation and empathy and um compassion um but i'm i'm pretty confident drawing that line yeah. um i i think you know by many measures empathy has fallen um by about uh, 40% in the past 30 years most of that has recurred since uh, the year 2000 which we basically mark as the beginning of the smartphone revolution. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to convince yourself that the smartphones that are in our hands, distracting our brains, making us trust people less are not in, in some way involved in the fact that we don't uh, like each other, talk to each other or uh, understand one another anymore. And also we have really good research that shows that we are the worst version of ourselves online. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, yeah. yeah. We, there's really good evidence that an email, for example, we're less likely to negotiate. We're less likely to cooperate and we're more likely to escalate conflict. So, I mean, it's impossible now that we have replaced email. Email has basically replaced almost every other form of communication. Most people would rather send an email than pick up the phone. So much so that companies like J.P. Morgan Chase and and Cisco and Coca Cola have eliminated voicemail from their phone systems. Really? That's how little we use the phone. Yeah. Um. And when email uh, encourages us to be mean to each other and escalate conflict, and we're using email. For almost every type of communication, well, do the math. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and it's and it it's kind of like the same. I mean, it's the same thing as why somebody will be um, difficult or mean behind a car. Road rage instances because you feel safe in that confined area. You know, that's your space. And then the same reason when you're sitting behind a screen and you're typing an email, you feel like you're communicating. You can say whatever you want. Yeah, it's just it's. <laughs> You're so right. It's one of my pet peeves. I, I see that in business a lot. I for particularly the last 15 years when I was in the corporate arena, I would see people spending an hour on this lengthy email and they feel like they've communicated, right? And it's like, why didn't you come up and talk to me? And and you could have talked to me in 10 minutes instead exactly. of writing an hour long email, right? Absolutely. You know, I just recently in my own business had a a, a, a actually pretty simple issue that needed to be resolved. And over a period of nearly three months, there were 150 emails exchanged (laughs) between all parties. I know. And then we finally got the two. Yeah. More than that many. (laughs) And (laughs) and when we finally got the two women on the phone in about 15 minutes time, they settled it. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. It's totally, it's just insane. So, yeah. So what do we do? I mean, what are some of the actionable things? Because I tell you, I mean, I, it's easy. I understand the dopamine piece 
you know, and, and I've even regressed even this last month. I used to trying to force myself not to be the first thing that I do is turn on my phone. And the last thing I do before I go to bed, I try to do something completely different. Right. Yeah. And that's good. And you, what you're, what you're doing there is you're choosing for yourself, what works for you. Right. And that's in the end, what has to be done. Like I can tell you what I do. I, I seven o'clock is my social media end after 7 PM. I do not look at social media anymore. Um, I like you, I wait an hour in the morning before I either look at my phone or check email um, and then I also turn off all my notifications. I don't get any notifications unless they're from an actual human being. Right. So <laughs> I don't need Facebook constantly letting me know that someone liked my post or Instagram or Twitter <laughs> or whatever. That is not essential information. Um, so those things worked for me. But frankly, um, doing what I do may not work for you. Um, you just have to kind of find those limits. The most important thing is that you actually decide on some limits, yeah. not what they are. I agree with you. At least you do something that it, it changes up the um, dependency, I guess, or at least the, the, the perception that you do need it And because you, you actually you don't. I mean, even think back 10 years ago, and I was talking with my wife about this, is like, man, I remember we debated about getting a, a cell phone in 19, I guess it was 1996. I'm like, well, we need one for an emergency. You know what I mean? And like, how did yeah. we communicate? And then it's like, and my kids are like, well, what did you do? And I'm like, ah, we, we left the house. And if we showed up at a friend's house, we'd call and say, hey, I'm at Mike's house or whoever. But I just yeah. like, oh my gosh. And now it's like, I feel like I got to know exactly where my kids are all the time. And I can know where they are at all times. And um, I don't know. Yeah, we seem to have forgotten. It really hasn't been all that long. Really? It hasn't. <laughs> Since- Since we got along just fine Mm -hmm. without those phones in our hands. And look, I'm not saying give up your phone. I need my phone. It's an incredibly powerful tool. I'm just saying we don't need it all the time. Right. Constantly. And, and what we're not aware, you know, here's the, here's the problem with research, right? The cell phone, the smartphone specifically revolution has been so explosive, at this point, the UN says more people have access to a cell phone in the world than have access to a working toilet. That's crazy. It's been so fast and so explosive. And you and I both know that clinical research takes years to complete. Mm-hmm. So it's happened faster than we can really understand the effect it's having in our brains. But what I can say to you now definitively is the smartphone is changing your brain. Are you okay with that? Because, you know, for example, in the UK, they did a study in which they brought in all these people to sit down and have conversations with perfect strangers. In half of those conversations, they just walked in and and set a cell phone on the table and walked out. Um, That cell phone didn't make any noise. It did not belong to either of the people who were chatting. But those people who had a cell phone present Uh, in the room were significantly more likely to say that the other person was untrustworthy, unfriendly, um, unempathetic. Wow. So, I mean, I just want you to think back to all those times when you've sat down to lunch with someone and you just set your cell phone on the table and maybe you felt good because you restrained, you refrained from checking it. But the fact of the matter is, is that cell phone is incredibly distracting to your brain. It's distracting to your brain. It's distracting to the brain of the person you're talking to, and it's having an effect on every human present that we're unaware of for the most part. Are we okay with that? Yeah, I'm not, I'm but not it's either. kind of the question you have to ask yourself. Am I okay sitting there talking to my kid when he has a cell phone in his hand, 
knowing that that cell phone is making my kid think I'm less friendly and less empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. And I, and I agree. I mean, I think, I think intuitively we know that because I think we've all been there sitting at lunch with a friend or a colleague or, an, or someone we're trying to get to know and the phone's out or, you know, it rings or it text dings and, oh, excuse me, I got to get this. It's, it's, it's insulting, right? Even on the, yeah. on the lowest level, it's just insulting. And I know I've done that to myself. You know, I was like, oh, you know, it's the wife's command post. I got to take this. But I've really disciplined myself to just turn it off and be present in the moment. And I know that sounds cliche, but it really, that's, that's what we're asking to do is to be present because, and it takes work. I don't care what anybody says. It takes a lot of work. It, it really does. And, you know, I talk in the, in the book about um, mindfulness meditation, because at this point we don't really, and if anybody else knows of, a, of another way of accomplishing this, I would love to hear about it. But at this point, we don't really know of any other way to train yourself to um, learn to focus on and on what you're listening to other than mindfulness meditation, which you. is actually quite effective at doing that. Mm-hmm. Um but short of that, we don't have a way for you to learn how to do that. You just have to learn how to not let your thoughts come into your mind, let them go out, and then return to what it you were listening to. With the cell phone there, that becomes a much more difficult proposition. Right. It's an it's unnecessary. You're right. Even without if we it just even without the phone, without the invention of the cell phone or social media, it was difficult enough. And now we exactly. just we just amplified it, you know, exponentially by introducing this this computer into the, into the realm. I'm interested. It's almost like the, the evolution of, of our brains isn't able to catch up with the technology or what's happening. Is that a fair assessment? Um, maybe, but I would, I would put it another way. I don't think we're all that clear on what it is that we do. Well, I, we didn't need technology to replace human communication. Right. Um, communication is the one thing that humans do better than any other species. You could make an argument for just about everything else that we do, except maybe long distance running, um, that there's another species that does it better. Right. Um, we're not particularly logical, <laughs> frankly. Um, we're not stronger. I mean, you, you know, as well as I do, you go out into the wild and nearly even smaller animals than we do win in a fight. Right. So, but the one thing that we do well is communicate and then collaborate based on that communication. So did we really need to replace that? Maybe we're just looking at the wrong kinds of technology. Maybe if what we're thinking about is how to make our lives better, what we need to look at is the things we don't do all that well and find that tech and, and go and let humans do what they do better than anyone else, mm-hmm. which is communicate with each other face to face and voice to voice. Yeah. I, it, it's interesting from, um, an internet marketing or a social, from a social media standpoint, I have a lot of other peers and friends that are doing, uh, what I'm doing here or trying to, to get clients as another consultant, another coaching client, another business where we can come in and help them, whatever. And we put this tremendous emphasis, at least I did, and so did a couple of my peers. And like, it's all about the internet marketing, the social media presence. And when things change, and this, I've certainly it's happened with me and and my friends, is the moment we pulled away from the kind of the technology and went back to the standard. Hey, let me introduce myself and sit down face to face and get to know each other. 
that's when the business started to change, if that makes sense. Going back to the old style of communicating is when uh, the pivot happened. I can name half a dozen instances where people I've known have done that. They've pulled away from the social media and as great as it is, um, and went back to the old style of communicating to get to know, like, and trust each other. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think what we really need to do is figure out what it is that social media, what does it do well and what does it not? Because basically we're like the, the proverbial carpenter with a hammer and, and everything's a nail, right? Um, we're, we're basically using social media and digital communication for everything. Yes. Instead of thinking to ourselves, what does email actually do well? Mm -hmm. And what does it not? You know, email is very, very good at sending attachments, right? Yeah. Email is, is very good at sending agendas. Um, it is it is good, I have found, for sending praise. It is not good for sending criticisms, complaints. It is not good for sending anything that requires nuance or debate or explanations. Absolutely. So maybe we need to start actually noticing what what these tools are are designed to do well and what they're not designed to do well and using the right tool for the right job. Yeah, I love that's a, a salient point. I think that's you know using email to to kind of just sum up what we've talked about. Hey Celeste, yeah. great conversation today. Here's what we talked about. Here's what's next. Look forward to talking to you again. Whatever. And it's short, it's sweet, and it just kind of documents what happened or what will happen. But you're right. The arguments, the the debate um, you can't do it. And I you think, can't. Yeah. Or an agenda for a meeting. Absolutely. Here's what we're going to talk about in the meeting. Yeah. And then you actually meet over the phone or in person and you talk about those things. Um, yeah. And it's like the people who try to get into arguments on Facebook. Have you seen when these arguments are coming <sighs> and beginning to develop and felt that dread in yes. your stomach? Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a terrible format yeah. for that. And yet we still keep doing it. We're, we're sitting there hammering away at that, at a screw with our hammer. (laughs) It's so true. So true. Yeah. And we're just not learning from it. That's the thing. It just takes us a moment to step away and, and remember the forest again. Yeah. Hey, in your book as I want to go back and as a pilot, one of the things I really wanted to talk about, you know, is um, you you write about in the book, the 1982 crash of air Florida flight 90 in in Washington, DC. Um, very familiar with that myself. We study that extensively. Why did you decide to throw that into your book, and why is it uh, important to you to to discuss that specific event? Um, I think one of the first eye openers for people, and the reason I started the book there was to point out that sometimes communication, uh, sometimes life in the hangs in the balance. Yeah. Um, and that's not just true for somebody like a pilot. It's true for somebody in a medical facil- f- uh, field. It's it's true for a number of people in high stakes professions, right? Right. But you know as well as I do that um, people have studied that particular crash for a long time. And there have been some incredibly powerful reforms um, in how we deal with ice, in how we deal with um, detection in, in planes. But what struck me was that um, investigators examined that exchange between the pilot and the co-pilot and their takeaway was um, co-pilots need to be trained in how to be more assertive when they're talking Mm -hmm. because the co-pilot a number of times times said to say you know i don't think this looks like right yeah and the pilot's like no 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 it's okay it's fine and that wasn't my takeaway at all my takeaway when i read that exchange between the two was wow we need to train pilots in how to listen yeah yeah, very. That's it's great that you said that because that I've heard 
That's come up before as we studied that. You're absolutely right that it's less about being assertive. And that's certainly true. I mean, I think one of the great points in that exchange, and I remember, I can't remember who attributed this, but and I took this with me, is that it's not my right to challenge, it's my obligation. And I go into that, um, into the cockpit with that mentality. But however, as, to your point, as the aircraft commander, as a pilot in command, um, it's so critical that when somebody does challenge me, or at least you try to, you have to encourage that environment, I guess is what I'm saying. And you have to be a great listener <laughs> to be listening to that, you know? So anyway, yeah. So, so keep expanding on that. Sorry, I didn't mean to, to hijack that. No, it, you no, but your point is, is a good one because it's, we're not just talking about pilots. We're talking about, yeah. about anybody in a, in a position of leadership, especially. Yes. Um, and, and it is so frequent that someone gets into a position of leadership, which means they have a great deal of experience. They're probably relatively smart and they stop listening yep. to the people around them. They start leg- lecturing instead. They become really enamored with their own voice and their own advice. And they think of themselves as being very wise. And that may all be true, but there is a major danger uh, in in not listening anymore or assuming you know what uh, someone else is going to say, or assuming that you know better. Yeah. Well, you have to do it. It comes on. It's almost like you have to be aware of it on steroids, because even if you have the best of intentions, as you get that leadership role, as you move over to the left seat, you have to work extraordinary hard because that bias is already inherent. The bias is already inherent that I'm sitting in that left seat or I'm in that leadership role. And whether you like it or not, there's an assumption there that people, you know what you're talking about. Exactly. And so go ahead. And I was just going to say that oftentimes leaders sometimes feel like they uh, show themselves as being weak if, yep. if they don't uh, claim to know it all. You know, there's, an, there's another chapter in the book about admitting when you don't know something. And um, this is something that uh, surgeons and doctors in particular have a tough time doing. Right. So they tried this out. They went and they said, okay, to half of the doctors, go ahead and continue business as usual. But to the other half, they said, okay, try this. When when you're not sure about something, instead of, of guessing and giving them your best guess, say, I don't know, but I'll find out. And this was really scary to doctors yeah. because they're afraid that as soon as you admit you don't know something, as soon as you admit uh, that you're unsure – this is going to make people doubt your leadership, doubt your intellect. Um, but it turns out it was the opposite. Yep, Patients had opposite. more mm-hmm. yeah, belief in their credibility, their intellect, their preparation when they admitted that they didn't know something. Yep. It's so true. It's, it's, it's a strength multiplier. When you sit yeah. there and you, and you can sit there with confidence and say, you know what? I don't know. What do you think? You know, what do you think we should do here? That is a tremendous uh, confidence builder for um, because they see you as a human being first and foremost. I mean, they see that you're and, and you're okay with it. You're like, I don't know, we'll figure it out. It's 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 having the kind of um, confidence, like I don't know how we're going to get through this, but I just know we will. You know, you you say it with strength. I don't know, we'll figure it out. What do you think? And I see, and then actually listen to what they and tell listen you. To what they tell you, right? I seen yeah. that, and and I think that was the the big advantage, or probably one of the biggest takeaways that has helped me in life, and particularly particularly the corporate arena, is having that that crew concept of sitting there as an aircraft commander, as a pilot in command. And when things have gotten hairy that, you know, you listen to what people say and then you make a decision based on that, you know, 
And it's, I think a lot of times people, it's a fine line. Sometimes they, they almost, they want too much of a consensus sometimes. And they think that if they, I don't know, it's just, you got to really work at it to, to bring everybody in. What do you think? Well, and I also think a really common um, mistake that leaders make is in that not actually listening thing, yeah. because very often it's so common for managers to ask for feedback or ask for, uh, you know, ask their employees, what do you think? What are your ideas? And then they don't actually listen. And it's also one of the most common complaints about employees is is they'll say, well, I went in there and told them all this stuff and that was it. Nothing ever happened. It resulted in zero action, which to me means that the leader didn't actually listen or didn't give, didn't give enough respect to what they were hearing. Yeah, they paid lip service to it, right? Yeah, my door's always open. Well, is it really? You know? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It, it may literally be open, but your mental door is not open. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that's more important. Uh, yeah. I can, oh, there's so many stories that I've seen in the military and flying planes where, where that's worked well and it hasn't. And I, I preach that to the, to the moon about if you can just sit there and nothing makes me happier. And I say this all the time. If I come in with an idea and I've, corporate setting, I had an employee that worked for me and she was great. She was, I would come in and this is what we're going to do. I just thought about this all night and I come in all excited. And she said, I don't know, Rich, I think that's a dumb idea with respect, not, not being, but she just, she had that courage to say that. And then I'm like, really tell me why I love that because I'm me why, why is it dumb? You know? And I just like flying a plane. Don't let me land with my gear up. That's what I tell guys that are brand new flying with me. I don't care what's going on. Do not let me crash in the mountain. Do let let me run out of gas and don't (laughs) let me land with the gear up. I don't care what I'm saying or doing. Don't let that happen today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yes. And yet we, a lot oftentimes we'll say that stuff. We want them to be ready. We want employees to be ready to speak up when we're about to have a crash, either literal or a figurative, mm-hmm. but we sometimes don't, um, we don't set the, the, we don't set the stage for that to happen by encouraging and respecting those opinions in less high stakes. That's right. And those everyday moments, those everyday interactions where, exactly, you know, Hey Rich, I think that's a dumb idea. Well, tell me more. Why, tell me more. Why do you think that's dumb? Let's have, let's talk about it, you know, and maybe we hash it out and maybe we get uh, a little heated and vocal. That's okay. As long as we're doing it with respect, right. And we're trying to, trying to hash it out. But at least we're listening and, and, and taking it, taking under advisement or doing something with that information. Yeah, it, that's right. It rises the level of the team. I mean, when when that person who has 600 hours of flight time tells the guy that has 30,000 hours and and he acknowledges that, you know, he saved the day in a sense. It's a small thing, a radio change or altitude miscall, whatever. It elevates. You feel that much more important. I'm part of this crew. I'm part of this team. It's very powerful. And it kind of takes me back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of what human beings are good at and what they're not. Um, And I mentioned quickly that human beings are, you know, we're not great at logic. We're not all that physically strong, but what we do do well is communicate and collaborate. And, you know, I want to just expand on that a little bit, because for example, if you're an HR person, most likely the the best person for the job is not necessarily the smartest person in the room. It's the person who collaborates best. Human beings operate as a hive mind. 
we're not particularly, you know, in terms of what we're good at and what we're not, we're not particularly good as um, at retaining information. We don't have the memory of an elephant. That's why we need computer data banks to fill in that, that task for us. Most people have no idea how a toilet works specifically, right? Right. But that's okay because we have the ability to communicate and get a plumber to fix our toilet. Same for brain surgery. Same for all those specific things. We can't possibly understand everything. We're a hive mind. And therefore, the person who collaborates best, the person who is best able to articulate their own needs, listen to other people, and take advantage of the talents and skills and knowledge of the people around them, that's your great uh, hire. That's your great leader. Well said. I can't agree with you more. I love that. Well, how did you get, how did you get passionate about this whole concept? I mean, obviously you're a communicator, you're a journalist, you're a radio host. How did, why is this such a passionate topic for you? I mean, as a journalist, especially, I've just been watching the uh, political discourse completely fall apart. Yeah. Um, it has not been that long since politicians would, regardless of party, go to their uh, ever the other person's kid's birthday party where they would hang out and have dinner after the legislative session where they socialized and then went straight back into Congress and argued with each other, right? Yeah, right. I mean, we don't do that anymore. We have gotten to a place where polarization is so bad that we hate each other. The other person is not just someone we disagree with. They are bad. Yeah. They, <laughs> they are an enemy. That's right. It's so <laughs> and, true. Yeah. And it's funny because I heard an expert the other day and I can't remember where I heard them, but they were saying, well, listen, you know, we were more polarized during the civil war than we are now. And I thought, really? I don't think we You're were. You're feeling confident about that? Yeah. Well, still, <laughs> even so, we were literally killing each other at that point. I, and that's what you're taking uh, you know, hope from is that we were more polarized during the civil war. Right. I mean, come on. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's, 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 this is what I have watched. And then I, I, I started to wonder what caused this. Are politicians just some aberration, but no, they are reflecting the polarization that's going on in their own communities. We have created a, a society in which we can and do isolate ourselves into bubbles. And the research is very clear on this. Regardless of how much you think you are living in a diverse diverse life of both uh, demographics and diversity of opinion, you most likely are not. Yeah. Most people hang out with people who look like them. They hang out with people who have the same sort of background as them. Most people hang out with people on a regular basis who have the same political opinions as they do. The number of people who would be angry if someone from the opposing political party married into their family has risen above 80% at this point. Yeah, it's really sad. You know, and I knew it, it's even, you know, last week, I don't know, someone was, one was knocked out in the street or unconscious and Six people are pulling out their phones and taking selfies with them instead of calling oh. for help. You know, that that's very sad. It's very troubling. And I think because it, it what you're talking about, it feeds into our uh, – we're isolated, we're lonely, and, and it feeds into our narcissistic tendencies, you know? I don't know. It's just I, – I, 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 I wish I knew how to, to change it. I guess we can change our own part of the world by putting the phone down, turning it off, and engaging in conversations. You're right. And I think back to my parents – they had a bridge group and they grew up or they were all newly married in the late fifties, early sixties. Right. And it was a circle of 
guess it was 10, five, five or six couples. And they would always play bridge and they became, they were lifelong friends and they had diverse political beliefs and backgrounds. I mean, completely yeah. opposite, but they loved each other and they, they lived with each other and they had, and they played cards together. They lived and they lived life together. And even though they had totally different religious and political beliefs, they loved each other. And I just, I, I, I can't even name, I don't even have, to be quite honest, um, five other couples I could do that with, let alone one. You know what I mean? And well, and also, if you, I think back to my my own grandparents who used to have neighborhood barbecues right. or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And they just invited all the neighbors. Um, and, you know, there was always some crazy dude that they, that, you know, <laughs> <Right>. had loved, <laughs> loved conspiracy theories or whatever it was. And they'd be like, oh, that's just Bill, um, you know, whatever. That's what he's like. But they still invited him next time. Right. They, they, didn't, <laughs> right. they didn't stop inviting Bill yeah. because he was always going off on the, the, the second shooter on the grassy knoll. Right. You know, I mean, that's we used to be totally fine getting along with disagreeing. Now, disagreeing on on political topics is, is a, a sign, a weakness of moral character. Mm-hmm. And we seem to think it as, as a on principle. We don't listen to diverse opinions. I mean, come on. If that's your excuse, if anyone listening to me right now says, well, there's some opinions that I just, it's, 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 um, it would be wrong of me to listen to them. I'm sorry. You have no cover for that. I'm not going to give you cover for that. That is that you are wrong. That's a, that's a cowardly stance. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes emotional intelligence. I think all this kind of stems back to, you know, exercising that emotional quotient piece of our, of ourselves. And, and getting back to the empathy piece, we've lost our center somehow on and, and realizing what we're good at and what we all stand for and what makes us unique as individuals, as human beings and as a country. And uh, it's it's lost. And again, I think it's it, it is tied into what you're talking about in this kind of the social media um, kind of conundrum. It's good on one hand, but man, it is so bad on another. Yeah. And again, this kind of circles us back to the beginning when we were talking about the things people don't know are true, but don't really want to talk about. And EQ is one of those. Um, I was just at the conference for women in uh, Austin, Texas, and I was on a panel with a couple CEOs, really smart, brilliant, accomplished women. But at one point, um, they both said, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone, don't bring emotion into it. It can't be emotional. And I thought to myself, you know what? Good luck. There's no, there's no, there is no such thing as a conversation that doesn't have emotion in it. There's, there's going to be emotion in there. So rather than trying to pretend like you're being 100% intellectual and logical, which is not the truth, just accept that every conversation is going to have emotion, be aware of it and use it to your advantage instead of seeing it as a weakness. Absolutely. Understand that human beings are emotional creatures. We are social creatures. And that has been our strength. That has been our strength going back to the days of Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. I, and we do ourselves a disservice by pretending uh, we can we can talk without emotion. It's not going to happen. Yeah, amen to that. It's so true. I mean, it's it's like why are we so afraid of getting into the arena of ideas and making things a little uncomfortable? It's 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 okay to to have conversations that are uncomfortable. That's the whole point. 
It, it, is, it is to find the truth or the best possible outcome. And that means emotions may run high, but the bottom line is I'm going to treat you with respect. I'm going to tolerate disrespect from, from no one. And if your emotional quotient is high, then no matter what you're saying at me, no matter what barbs and arrows you're slinging my way, if I'm truly um, exercising my EQ, I can put myself into your shoes and go, yeah, I see what she's saying makes sense, right? And it doesn't matter what you're saying to me. Yeah. And, and, and stop thinking about these conversations in terms of what they're going to do for the other person. Right. Think about what they'll do for yourself because, um, comfort is not a great motivator. Right. People who are comfortable are not the innovators of the world. Right. It is discomfort that motivates innovation and new ideas and, um, action. Right. So if you're having conversations and the point of talking to somebody who agrees with you is because you, you don't want to be uncom- made uncomfortable, then you, you will experience no growth. You'll live a mediocre life and, and you'll, you'll, yeah. you'll bathe in mediocrity, which is what we're doing anyway. And so let's just get a little uncomfortable, respect each other as human beings, love each other because we're alive at this moment and let's just, let's just hash it out. But in a respectful manner, I don't know. It's just, it seems common sense to me, but. I, I get why we don't do it. I I do get why we don't do it. And I'm sure a lot of people are saying, well, that's easy for her to say. It's not. This, those conversations are just as tough for me as they are for you. But you have to have them. You have to have them. Because otherwise we don't, like I said, we, we just we stay in, in a mediocre state. Exactly. Well, I love what you're doing. The book is We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. What what else can we, how can people find you? You're on the radio that there in, in Georgia on NPR. Where else can people find you? How can they? And that's also you? podcast. Of course, if you, you, your podcast client, if you look up on second thought, you'll find me there. And you know, if in order to find all of this stuff, they can just go to the website, celesteheadley.com. I'll have links to all this. Uh, Celeste has been a fun and fascinating conversation. I'd, I'd love to expand this further, have you back on at some later date, but uh, my gosh, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for the great questions. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Go to richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com and fill out the contact page and reach out to me. Let me know where you're at your leadership journey. Also, if you want access to my brand new online leadership course to help become a better leader, go to legacyleaderblueprint.com. Fill out your email and you gain access to a free 12-minute video that will reveal the top secrets of leadership and also show you how you can gain access, exclusive access to my online leadership course. That's legacyleaderblueprint.com. Hope to see you on the inside. Thanks for tuning into the show.